asked by a, a friend of mine, a fellow preaching pastor, yesterday afternoon, mid-afternoon, uh, along with a few other preaching pastors that are on a communication thread together, hey, are you guys gonna say something about the election? And if so, what are you gonna say? And, and my response initially was just a simple no punctuation, no. And then I sat with that for about 10, 15 minutes. I thought, should I? You know, your mind kind of starts going places and you're like, well, why did he ask me that? You know, should I say something? If so, what would I say? And, and I, it, it came to me, you know, I think, I think the one thing that I would say, I've already said a few years back, we went through the book of Daniel together and one of the, the most fundamental truths in our study of that book of the Bible was simply this, that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God shall reign forever. And that is a simple truth that I think just levels the playing field. Whether you, you come in lowly and humble, it raises you up to a place of confidence. If you come in proud, haughty, arrogant, it, it lays you low to a place of submission to God and his kingdom. It's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't lead to pride nor despair. It leads to confident humility. And so that's it. That's all I have for you in terms of the upcoming craziness of the week to ensue. But I have more for you in terms of the scriptures. So if you have a Bible... You can go ahead and open up to Psalm 131 this morning. That's where we're gonna be. Uh, we are currently working our way through 15 of the Psalms that make up the book of Psalms, uh, what are known as the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. As you can see, we are in the home stretch of this series. It's gonna carry us right up to the season of Advent, and then we're gonna dive into some stuff pertaining to the Advent season. But for now... Uh, let me pray for us, and, and we'll get to work this morning. Heavenly Father, just the very fact that we can call you Father is a testimony to your sovereign grace in rescuing us into your forever family in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see this morning the ways in which we function as enemies of our own joy, that we might know the peace and, and tranquility that comes in calming and quieting our souls in your presence. Would you give us a taste of your presence even now as we open your word together? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So there's an article that came out June 6, 1983, some of you in this room were not born then, some of you kiddos. Time Magazine uh, referred to stress in this particular article as, quote, the epidemic of the 80s. A crushing blow to those of us who thought the 80s could do absolutely no wrong. A, a pendulum swing from the, the seemingly free-spirited 70s, which came with its own set of challenges, to be sure, Interestingly, the, the epidemic stress curve of the 80s hasn't seemed to come down in the, the past several decades since Time Magazine uh, wrote that article. The 80s sadly came to an end, but, but worry and stress did not, right? We bring that into this space this morning. We all deal with stress, whether job-related, health-related, family dynamic-related, some of that will come to bear even in the weeks to come. It's the holiday season finance related, and on and on we could go. And we've, we've had those things press significantly even in this calendar year in, in new ways. Some of those stressors brought on by the devil, the prince of the power of the air, to use Paul's language in Ephesians 2, he and his demon army on this unrelenting mission to keep the roots of the gospel from going deeper in our lives, in our hearts, 
whispering things in our ears that are not centered on the word of God nor the gospel of God, filling our minds with worry, our hearts with, with worry, other stressors brought on by, by the world, the trends of culture and society that, that beckon us to wander off of the gospel path, whether it be social media posts, commercials, life experiences, these things too, and in addition to the devil's schemes, filling our minds and hearts with worry as we just simply live, work, and play in the midst of the cultural backdrop in which we find ourselves, our moment in redemptive history. But if we're honest, I think it would be fair to say that a great deal of our stress is brought on from within, what the Apostle Paul refers to as the flesh, our minds, emotions, and, and wills out of step with the Spirit of God whether unsatisfied with what God allows us to do and, and be or with what God allows us to have, to possess. So that we end up, you could say, treading water in a, in a sea of self-induced stress because we failed in the words of one of the, the Puritans to excavate the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Psalm 131, it's simply a psalm of trust, the posture of a calmed and quieted soul before the Lord, to use the language of this song itself a song whose lyrics are incredibly brief. You could probably read them in half a minute, and yet they take a half a century to learn. If you pick up in verse one of Psalm 131, the psalmist declares, "'O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me.'" A heart lifted up and eyes raised high. Those are expressions, biblically speaking, of arrogance and pride condemned throughout the scriptures from start to finish. In Psalm 101, David declares, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proverbs 21.4 declares, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Which is not to say we shouldn't lift our eyes, right? We've seen this even in this series up to this point. Uh, Psalm 121.1, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? Or Psalm 123.1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 131, it's not about refusing to lift our eyes at all. Rather, it's about having a proper perspective regarding our, our place in the hierarchy of the universe, really. Here the psalmist simply declares that he's not God, that only God is God, that there are things too great and marvelous for him beyond his finite ability to comprehend. You see it in this sort of language in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, where it says, uh, the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. That there are things that, that God has revealed to man, giving us what we need for faith and godliness. And there are things that God has not revealed to man, hidden things to which only the divine is, is privy. If I can just stop for a second, I, th I think we may have the wrong keynote accessible and just for people to be able to track, particularly if you don't have a Bible, I wanna be able to, to provide that for you. But let me just read that again, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, 
But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Again, there are are things that are revealed that God has given us so that, thank the Lord, we're not left to human speculation because we have divine revelation. Thank God for that chapter of the systematic theology book that declares that God does tell us things about him and about ourselves and about the world in, in which we live. But there are things that God has not revealed, things that are hidden. God himself declares, Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the kind of, that's the kind of theology that, leads the apostle Paul to burst forth in praise in his letter to the Romans, very famous passage of scripture, Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's put God on the couch, so to speak? Or or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Again, easy to confessionally believe, to agree with in theological principle, much more difficult to functionally embrace, to grab hold of with the fullness of our minds and hearts. That's much of the challenge of the Christian life, is it not? Once we learn theology and get it ingrained in our minds, then then we have to somehow grab hold of it in the moment. It's one thing to know as you read the book of Jonah that God is sovereign over the great fish of the deep and worms and plants and everything in between. It's a whole nother thing to believe that when everything in your life comes unraveled. Contrary to the popular belief of our day making this Psalm all the more challenging, our cultural context declares that you can know everything, just search enough in the, the cosmos, in the uh, stratosphere of Google, et cetera. You can do anything that you put your mind to. There are no limitations on you. Right? The psalmist understands that, that there are things that he cannot know unless God chooses to make them known, and that there are things that he can't do things beyond his capabilities and and capacities, that not only does he embrace his finiteness, but he's content with it, which is in large part the essence of this psalm. It is about the the jewel, the rare jewel of, of Christian contentment, so to speak. Eugene Peterson, in, in his commentary uh, on Psalm 131, he says, He says this, he says, our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation, with God loving and us being loved, with God making and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us responding. Being a Christian, he says, means accepting the terms of creation, accepting God as our maker and redeemer and growing day by day into an increasingly glorious creature in Christ, developing joy, experiencing love, maturing in peace, 
By the grace of Christ, he says, we experience the marvel of being made in the image of God. If we reject this way, the only alternative is to attempt the hopelessly fourth-rate, embarrassingly awkward imitation of God made in the image of men and women like us. The psalmist understands that there's, there's peace in acknowledging that we're not God, that we don't know everything as much as we'd like to think we do, that we can't do everything as much as we'd like to think we can. It's really an invitation to lay down our pride along with its inherent assumption that God owes us more, that we can put God in our debt on the basis of our rituals and religiosity. It's an invitation to declare that it's not so much about being whatever we want to be, but rather being what we were made to be, leaning into who God designed us to be and the purpose that he has for our lives and glorifying him and him alone. In that kind of posture, coming back to this morning's psalm, the psalmist is truly free a freedom into, into which the Lord invites all of us as well today. Freedom from the, the restlessness and discontentment that comes in, in comparing and competing and in, in trying to outdo and outperform. Freedom from the frustrations associated with believing that we could do jo God's job better than, than God if only he would operate and submit to our sovereign infallible plans. It's a freedom to, to trust God with our limitations and to rest contentment, content in him. Knowing that as the Bible says over and over again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In, in Shakespeare's uh, Henry VI, the, the king at one point in the story is asked, but if thou be a king, where is thy crown? And the king's response, I love this. He says, my crown is in my heart, not on my head not decked with diamonds and Indian stones, nor to be seen. No, my crown is called content, a crown it is that seldom kings enjoy. That's what Psalm 30, 131 is. It's an, an invitation to enjoy that, that rare jewel of Christian contentment that comes in humbling ourselves before the Lord which is where the imagery of Psalm 130 comes into play, going back to last week, right? Reminding us that, that we were dead on the ocean bottom, that we were lost sinners in, engulfed in the depths of our depravity, unable to rescue ourselves. Reminding us that the infinite God for whom nothing is impossible rescued us, lifting us as lost sinners from the ocean bottom in Jesus Christ. To use the language of Psalm 130 going back to last week, but with you there is forgiveness, that only by God's grace in Christ did, did we have any hope of rescue. It's what I call the pride-crushing hope of the gospel. It fans into flame this, this beautiful virtue of humility out of which true contentment is, is birthed. The psalmist goes on, proving that this really is one of the more difficult psalms because he comes at us from two different angles of conviction, bringing us to our knees. Look at, look at verse two. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. No longer treading water in a sea of self-induced stress, the soul no longer storm-tossed, you might say. It's fascinating how Psalm 130 and 131 come together so beautifully because in Psalm 130, again, you, you have this picture of a soul on the ocean bottom that can't rescue itself that cannot stand in the presence of God if God doesn't intervene. 
a soul desperate for the forgiveness that only God can give. Psalm 131 gives us a picture of that rescued soul. You now have a baby, a life where there was once death. Now with a responsibility to respond rightly, having been made alive. Look at the language of verse two. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. The psalmist having taken initiative here in response to the life given by God, that that only God could act, Psalm 130, to bring about our forgiveness, and he has in Jesus Christ. Now having received forgiveness, Psalm 131, we're now invited to participate in the calming and quieting of our turbulent souls. Notice Notice the imagery, which in and of itself contains incredibly deep theology that I would argue many of us have failed to grasp in its fullness. The the picture of of a mother and a child reminding us that we who humble ourselves before the Lord, verse one, are not without dignity. We're children of the living God. It's one of the most beautiful doctrines in all of scripture, the doctrine of adoption. We talk about it so often as a church, declaring that God not only rescued us from the ocean bottom, but he made us a part of his forever family. John 1, 12 says, but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or as Paul says in a couple of different places, Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Or how about Ephesians 1, verses four through six? In love, he predestined us for adoption. There it is, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Again, I don't know how many times I've said this, but it bears repeating. If you're a Christian, you've been brought in off the street, out of the dumpsters of depravity. You've been given a home and a name. You're, You're no longer a spiritual orphan. God is your Abba, and you are his child. And here's the beauty of Psalm 131. That's true regardless of where you find yourself in the imagery of this morning's passage. Weaned or not, a child of God is a child of God. Man, that's good news. It's an identity that's ours, as many of you know, by grace through faith in Jesus, the sinless son of God who died in the place of wayward sinners that we might be brought in, made sons, made daughters in Christ, part of God's forever family to the praise of his glorious grace, to use Paul's language in Ephesians 1. That said, there are two stages of formation in the parent-child imagery of this morning's psalm so that you have that of an unweaned child who looks to his or her mother for, for what she can give, oftentimes in fits and sobs, as you parents know. And then you have that of a weaned child who looks to his or her mother for companionship, the warmth of her nearness, the warmth of her affection. I've got a five and a six-year-old, so I get a little bit of both. I mean, you have the unweaned aspect of things where, where it's you know, coming to mommy or, or daddy for what they can give uh, in recent history. As you can imagine, it's, 
things that will rot their teeth. I mean, it is November 1st. And so even in the unweaned imagery, you have this, this sort of convicting aspect of Psalm 131 that reminds us that not only is, is there this challenge of not living in the unweaned reality alone as a Christian, but even in that space that oftentimes we come to God and we ask him to write the checks for our idols, for our functional saviors, rather than crying out for milk and trusting that what he gives is good for us. But it goes further than that, Psalm 131 does. My youngest daughter, Quinn, she's sitting right here. She's probably like, oh my goodness, daddy's talking about me right now. Um, she, she has this thing that she does whenever we snuggle with her, if we're you know, maybe laying on the couch watching a movie and she's in front of mom or dad and we're both facing the, the TV, where even though we're there, she'll still reach back behind her and, and do this thing, like where she'll, she'll just pat the face just because she wants to make sure that she knows that we're there. It's just a, I wanna feel daddy's beard because then I know that it's daddy and he's right there with me. In the words of Kenny Chesney, that's the good stuff. Like that's where it's at as a parent. Sadly, many professing Christians know nothing of that kind of intimacy forever and always living in the fits and sobs of a relationship with God that can't seem to move beyond needs and wants to something better, something greater. As a, as a weaned child is content with his mother's presence, so the psalmist is content in the Lord. That there's a, there's a peace and tranquility that comes in calming and quieting one's soul in the presence of, of God and not solely approaching God for what he can give like a baby longing for his or her mother's milk, but rather approaching God for God, to be with him, to know his nearness, satisfied in the snuggle, so to speak, regardless of, of circumstance, even when he doesn't give us what we, what we want or think we need, knowing that verse one, his ways are higher than our ways, that he's the parent, that we're the children in this relationship, a call to trust. Charles Spurgeon once said in terms of this psalm, to the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Whew. I would ask this morning, is that part of your Christian experience? A weaned Christianity that knows something of an intimacy with God regardless of circumstance. A weaned Christianity that doesn't always approach God in prayer with petitions alone. For the psalmist, the, the quiet and calm of a childlike contentment, it compels him to urge God's people to renew their hope in him. Notice he becomes evangelistic in verse three saying, O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's a, it's a contentment in God's presence, if you've experienced it, that, that doesn't just hope for itself, but evangelizes others to that kind of intimacy and hope that, that God's people in a collective sense might find their contentment in him. That as Christians, we don't have to do what, what one of my daughters would do to the other, which is it's my turn to snuggle with daddy, not yours. No, we all get to come into the intimate presence of God all the time from now and forevermore. 
It's an invitation to, to bring the quieted soul of humble submission as a family before our heavenly father, refusing to tread water in a lonely sea of self-induced stress by ourselves. Rather, you have this together hope that, that trusts and rests in the presence of God. I mean, my goodness, talk about a, both an encouraging and challenging psalm, right? It's encouraging because it reminds us of our adoption in Christ Jesus. That if you're a Christian, you're a, you're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. Grace of all grace, right? And yet you have the conviction and challenges that come in this kind of imagery. To again quote Spurgeon, he says, comparing all the Psalms to gems, we should liken this to a pearl, Psalm 131. How beautifully it will adorn the neck of patience. It is one of the shortest Psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. Lowliness and humility are here seen in connection with a sanctified heart, a will subdued to the mind of God, and a hope looking to the Lord alone. Again, half a minute to read it, half a century to learn it. As God invites us to, to recognize our limitations, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, to do nothing, Philippians 2, 3, from selfish ambition or conceit. To learn the secret, Philippians 4, 11, of true contentment. To know the, the calm and quiet of God's presence rather than always coming to him with an agenda. To move by God's grace beyond the, the sobs and fits of an infantile posture to, that sees him primarily as a means of satisfying one's own desires to the, the tranquil trust of a weaned child who's happy just to be with God and loves him for his own sake. This Psalm invites us very simply to live in God's presence, to rest in God's care, to enjoy the snuggles, in the stillness of a, of a humble, childlike spirit that we can know true peace, that we can know true contentment. It's in the stillness of a humble, childlike spirit, spirit that we can know God. Alec Motyer, in his commentary, he says, this is the life setting in which the toddler grows. This is what gives toddlers confidence for living, a sure and secure context for life, and a platform for advancing to the next stage. Here it is. Keeping company with the great parent, capital P. Feeling the strength of his hand gripping ours, knowing that he will never leave or forsake us or lead us astray. If I could just close out our time saying this to, to all of us, myself included this morning, the Father's arms have the strength to hold you in Christ. This psalm is an invitation to rest there, satisfied in him, to, to know the peace and tranquility that comes in calming and quieting your soul in the presence of God. My word, if there aren't turbulent waters both inside of us and around us right now, right? Can we acknowledge that? This psalm gives us something incredibly encouraging in the midst of all that. And I hope that we'll grab hold of it. I hope that we'll, we'll see the unweaned aspects of our souls as we look at this psalm 
and that we'll see the, the ways that we cry out for things other than milk, even in that piece of the, the formative stages of Christianity for us, and that we'll see that there's something even better than that beyond the unweaned formative stage to the, the weaned enjoyment of the presence of God, and that we will know something of that kind of Christianity as a church moving forward, as a family, as siblings. In a moment, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna worship this God you just sit in his presence. And by the way, that's not something that we just do during this hour, this Sunday worship hour. Psalm 131 scatters with the people of God as much as it gathers with the people of God. At the same time, we do have a unique opportunity. We're gonna sing a couple of songs to close out our service. Just invite you to, to take that imagery in, that of a child and a parent, in, in the midst of the, the snuggles of intimacy, just get that picture in your mind as you sing to this God in these moments to come. We're also gonna worship through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Uh, if you didn't grab a cup on the way in, there are some on the back table. You're welcome to go grab one of those. Uh, between now and the end of the service. It's up to you as to when you partake of those elements. We wanna give space for the spirit to move. So anytime during those last couple songs, you're welcome to do so. As you prepare to take of the bread and the cup, I, I would encourage you to pause for a moment and, and to consider the, the beauty and wonder of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus by which we could be made sons and daughters of God, that we could even be a part of the, Im the parent-child imagery at all. It's because of Jesus. Jesus.